Word of God, please, to First Peter. Yeah, First Peter, chapter two, verse eighteen. Yeah, it's a bittersweet thing to watch. Uh, really, really great people grow up on you, and uh, I know it's really super bittersweet for James and uh, for the parents and for the pastor, especially. Thank you, family, for coming today to honor them. Yeah, First Peter, chapter two. Let me uh, read that passage. I'm looking at the New American Standard Bible. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And the original language says those who are harsh or hard to deal with. You ever had a boss that's harsh or hard to deal with? For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a believer bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. A hard to deal with harsh boss is the context here. For what credit is there if when you sin, you show up late, leave early, steal a stapler, don't do your job, and you're harshly treated, given a pink slip, you endure that with patience. But if when you do what is right, you're early, Work hard, great attitude, stay late, and suffer for it. They don't appreciate it. They don't uh, give you the warm fuzzies and the affirmation you deserve. And you continue to do that because you're a believer submitting to your place. Uh, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. One reason we're in the world so people can see how Christian janitors and Christian brain surgeons and Christian garbage men and Christian... Engineers are different than non-Christians. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, the ultimate example, for you to follow in his steps. And he had no deserved suffering. We bring a lot of our suffering on ourselves, but he committed no sin, not a zero, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And yet, while being reviled, we're thinking about before and during the crucifixion, but many other times in his ministry, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But here's the key to dealing with unfair suffering as a Christian every time. He kept entrusting himself to him, God the Father, who judges righteously. Keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. And guess what? His submission to that situation is the very basis of our eternal salvation if we trust him for it. And while he was suffering so unfairly, he's doing everything necessary to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. He gave the Son to be the payment for our sins. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that as believers regenerated through his grace, we might now, as Christians, die to sin, live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For prior to this, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned, you've been reconciled to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This morning we're going to continue a portion of this book that deals with submission and that's a, a tough subject for most of us, probably. Certainly a tough subject for me. 
But I think this passage, among others, teaches us that while submission is a tough subject, it's not a bad word. And we know that because submission by Christ on the way to and during the crucifixion is the very basis for our salvation in Christ. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, verses 18 through 25. But let's pray uh, that we'll be teachable to God's word, that the spirit who inspired this text has preserved it, will illumine it to our hearts. And so let's pray for those who protect and serve us, thinking about firefighters and peace officers and our active military. Okay, so um, Eric uh, Ward, uh, pray for us in that direction, would you? Okay, well, just some uh, previews of coming attractions. You know, this Wednesday night, it's going to be movie night, The Case for Christ, 6.30 at the Palace. Admission is free, but buy a lot of concessions because that's how the folks at the theater make their money on Wednesday night. So bring your friends uh, and come and and spend some time with us there. Uh, Tonight at uh, 6.33, to be precise, at uh, Zane's house, we're going to have our monthly <clears throat> men's fellowship. And then also, this coming Friday, if you've never gotten five feet away from a PGA golf tour and watch him try to drive a golf ball as hard as he can hit it on the 11th par 5 straightaway par 5 at the Colonial Invitational, you got to see this thing. You cannot. Television does not communicate how hard they hit that ball how much they compress that ball. You can't believe it. I know you watch it on television. You don't want to watch golf. It looks like these people with beautiful, smooth swings hit this thing, and it bounces up by a flag. Big deal. Anybody could do that. You have no idea how much violence is unleashed on these golf balls, man. They just kill them, man. It's incredible. And uh, so anyway, Ron, Tom, and I are going to leave real early so we can get to Fort Worth as early as possible and watch them play. And if you want to come with us, uh, you're welcome to come and how much room you got in your vehicle there? Like 17? And uh, he's got a, yeah, if necessary. But uh, talk to Ron or me today and we'll hook you up on that. But thinking about that golf tournament, you know, when I think of golf professionals, I think of my dear friend uh, Bill Shelton. There's Marie. He's just cracked a joke at a Wednesday night fellowship dinner and she's looking at him crosswise there. But uh, he was a World War II hero. He's a teaching pro at Duncan Country Club for decades. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of ideas about how to make PGA Tour golf more exciting. But I'm not going to waste your valuable time covering all of those. But I would like to warm up your capacity for abstract thought by sharing with you Bill Shelton's top five suggestions to make the PGA Tour more exciting. Number five, replace boring sand traps with much more exciting bear traps. He thought that would make it more interesting. Before each long putt, have a WWE announcer shout, let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> On TV broadcasts of the PG events, replace Johnny Miller with Ronnie Miller. It'd be so much better. Design golf shoes to look like really cool bowling shoes. That, that's what they need. If they, if they had golf shoes that looked as good as the bowling shoes, more people would watch. And finally, give special trophies all the golfers on the tour whose tee shots hit either a pastor or a youth minister. Uh, the the uh, purpose statement of this five-chapter book is found right in the middle in chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. And he says, 
uh, as spiritual aliens, uh, the folks he's writing to have been forced to leave their homes and their pensions and their jobs because of persecution against their Christian faith. And he says, as spiritual, cultural aliens and short-timers on earth, even if you live to be 97 years old, it's a short period of time. Christians should not be controlled by our emotions and our feelings because they fluctuate and they're all over the place. But we should consistently live our faith centered on the one who saved us, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that unbelievers who slander us because we are Christians, uh, including Caitlin and Riley as they step into the real world of college and, and business, uh, will see the reality of Christ in our lives and ultimately glorify God by coming to him in faith or to boil it down to a real practical message, I think this book is saying, keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, Christian, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. When you can't uh, trace his hand, trust his heart kind of thing. Now that purpose statement that we just read controls the rest of the book. The first part of the book we finished, and it talks about kind of the basics of Christian faith and works, just as a reminder. And those don't go away when you're suffering. You still have a responsibility to do the right things. But now we're looking at the second, that second uh, rectangle there, the bluer one uh, to the right, lower right part of the diagram there, Faith Under Fire 102. And we're talking about submission, and we'll end up with suffering. And our passage breaks down like this this morning. In verses 18 through 20, we're told that Christians who work as servants or employees today, we would say, are to willingly submit, and that's really redundant, because the word submit, hupotasso, means that you voluntarily put yourself under someone's authority or leadership. They can't force you to submit. They can coerce you, but they can't force you to submit. You've got to do that yourself. But those of us who, and this would be for students at school working with their teachers or, or athletes working with coaches or whatever, in these human relationships where we have a subordinate role. Christians who serve in those roles are to willingly submit to those who are over us as a key expression of our Christian faith. And that's a tough subject for anybody, especially when we have unreasonable bosses or we don't get all the warm fuzzies we deserve. But that's a kind of a general order we're given. And then the second part of the passage, verse 21 through 25, says to do this, and really the only way to do this for a Christian is to focus on Christ as the ultimate example of godly submission in the face of suffering, realizing that his submission on the cross in that area is the very heart of his saving work for us. Now, a couple of weeks ago, last time we were in First Peter, we emphasized the word in the original uh, that's translated submission in English is not a expression of weakness. It's not you cowering in fear, Caitlin, as you submit to somebody who's over you in a human authority figure role. It's an expression of spiritual faith, uh, of strength, that you freely choose to give them as you submit to Christ over that person or that thing you're submitting to. And it's especially important in certain areas. Last time we saw it as we relate to our human government. Now, the principle always is this. Always submit to human authority if you're a Christian until or unless it's a direct sin to submit to human authority. Because God is always at the top of the chain of command. So there's always some implied exceptions. If you are working somewhere and you find out that there's sexual harassment going on or physical harassment or some kind of horrible uh, uh, illegal activity in the back, you know, and this is the front for it, 
you don't have to put up with that. You can move down the road. We're not slaves in this country anymore. We're employees. We can always get another job. But submission is not a terrible thing in the Christian pantheon. It's, a, it's something that should be at the heart of our lives because we do have all these relationships we need to respect. And the bottom line is only the truly strong spiritually truly submit. But let's look at this first part of the passage, verse 18 through 20. was a command, a principle, and the reasoning behind the principle. Look at verse 18. He says, shifting from submission to human government to submitting to your employer, in this case servants to masters. Servants be submissive to your masters, not to all masters, not to all employees. You're not a different thing uh, spiritually at all, but you're just in a different role. With all respect for their position, not necessarily for their personality or even their character. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Uh, Christian employees are to be submissive. That's something you give voluntarily to your masters, to your employers, to your coaches, to your teachers, to the elders of your local church. With all respect for their role and their position, not just to those who are good and gentle, but those who are unreasonable. If I could give you a quote from soniclight.com, which is this uh, Dr. Constable, Tom Constable's Bible study site. He says, uh, for society at large, when the New Testament was written, slaves were not full persons. For the Christian church and for believers, slaves were full and equal persons. Now, the New Testament never directly addresses the institution of slavery in society, for that was outside its province. Society in that day did not claim to be representative and certainly not representative of Christians. But the New Testament does address the situation of relationships in the church where no social distinctions were allowed. Uh, those who were employees or servants who came to faith were full brothers and sisters with those who were their masters or their uh, political leaders. Uh, for all in Christ are brothers and sisters. However shocking that would have been to the culture at large in the first century. And I think this is an example where you do have these passages in the New Testament that talk to servants and or to uh, masters and kind of tell them some basic principles. These are examples of passages that regulate certain things without commending them. Now, you can regulate institutions without commending them. I mean, the Bible talks about divorce and gives certain uh, criteria for divorce without encouraging divorce, okay? Uh, here it speaks to servants um, without uh, encouraging the institution of slavery. And in fact, the principles of the New Testament that we're all made in the image of God and in Christ we're all totally equal ontologically is the basis for the destruction and dismantlement of slavery in Western culture. But it, it took some time. It didn't come from the top down. It came from individuals the ground up, that kind of thing. Now, by the way, another thing he brings up before we look at verse 18 again, uh, Dr. Constable at soniclight.com, um, a lot of times, like in Ephesians, Paul will talk to servants and then he'll talk to masters. Christians that are masters, you need to treat your folks reasonably and, and charitably, and Christians that are servants, you need to do this, that, and the other kind of what Peter says here. But here Peter speaks just to servants and doesn't address masters at all. And I really hadn't thought about that. But Constable points out, Paul addressed servants here and not masters specifically because he was addressing the social situation in which some of his readers were 
household servants and few if any were masters. These people had been persecuted and forced to leave their homes. They weren't a lot of masters. These weren't a lot of people with high social status. So he's talking to people that uh, were in the lower part of that dynamic, and that's why he deals with them and not with masters here. But masters have certain responsibilities or employees too. Now, by the way, look at verse 18 again. That word for servant, you know, a lot of times, about 95% of the time, when the New Testament talks about servants, it uses a particular term that is translated bond slave, doulos. But this is a different term here. Uh, that means a household servant. So don't picture somebody being worked to death out in a cotton field or something like that. We're talking about people that would have been at the least maids or butlers. And now I don't necessarily want to be a maid or a butler, but I mean that's a that's not exactly working in a coal mine or something like that or a salt mine. But also in the first century Roman uh, situation, quite often household servants were accountants. They would have taken business administration and been basically like financial managers for their uh, for the estate they worked on. Uh, they were tutors, teachers, and even physicians. Most of the physicians in the Roman world were household servants. So these people were not necessarily low educated or not respected. But uh, Paul, or here Peter in the word of God says, hey, willingly submit to those who are over you and not just to the ones that are nice and tell you how great you are all the time but also to those who are harsh or hard to deal with. Now, fortunately, the whole institution of slavery has been punted away because of the application of biblical principles, so we're not dealing with that. But have you ever had a boss, Riley? You worked at the T-shirt shop for a while, right? Did you ever have a boss that was hard to get along with? Could be harsh, you know? Did you ever ever have a coach? You play football, ever have a coach that... You know, it was kind of harsh. They kind of yell at you a lot, scream at you a lot, just to make you feel part of the group, you know. Uh, uh, you ever had a teacher that was hard to deal with at all? You know, basically our responsibility as Christians is to respect that person's role and do the best we can. You know, uh, if you're giving lemons, you're supposed to make lemonade. Now, again, if there's sexual harassment, physical harassment, something that's unethical, illegal, you don't have to put up with that. Uh, you go through the chain of command. But most of the time, you won't have to deal with that, hopefully. And he's stressing kind of these normal kind of situation. That's the basic command. Now look at verse 19. The principle underlying this is, for this finds favor with God. This is an evidence that God's grace is working in your life when you respond not just to positive inputs, but also to people that are hard and harsh, and you still do the right thing. This means you're committed to something bigger than just pleasing your boss if he's unpleasable, if he's implacable. But this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, if Riley is not just working for Ron, although Ron would be a great person to work for, obviously. Uh, if, you're, if you're working at Kelpro, you know, you're in a pretty blessed uh, operational environment. Most people don't have that kind of environment to work in. Don't ever take that for granted. Uh, but if for, a sake, uh, for, uh, if for the sake of conscience toward God, if Riley is in a difficult work situation, but he continues to show up with a great attitude and do the best he can, and give the man kind of uh, the money, the work money, uh, earns his money, earns his uh, paycheck, as it were. You're doing that because you want to glorify God and submit to Christ. Uh, that finds favor with God when you bear up under sorrows, when suffering unfairly under a harsh or unappreciative boss. Verse 20 is saying, now watch out, not all suffering with those over you is because you're putting up with something that's unfair. Sometimes we cause this ourselves. 
For what credit is there if when you sin, you show up late, leave early, take staplers that you're not supposed to, people steal stuff like that from their bosses and that, have a crummy attitude, gossip about your boss, slander it, undermine the whole thing. Uh, if they find out about that and they let you go or they demote you or penalize you in some way, and then you endure that with patience, there's, there's nothing there that glorifies God. You deserve that. But if when you do what's right and you suffer for it because you've got a harsh hard to get along with boss or work environment, this finds favor with God because this is consistent with the purpose statement of the book. What's the purpose statement saying, Steve? It's saying, you know what? If we will keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, unbelievers, show up early, work hard, have a good attitude, don't uh, don't stay, uh, don't leave five minutes early, show up early and stay late if necessary. Um, I know I'm married to somebody who goes early and stays late quite often at, uh, to keep Duncan Public Schools working. Um, keep, but she was voted employee of the period. You know, Lori, you realize about 10 years ago somebody decided we need to have a special award called the employee of the period. That's what it's called, employee of the period. And she was the very first and only winner of the employee of the period because after they gave it to her, obviously nobody could be at her level. So they, I think whoever, whatever bureaucrat decided they needed that award forgot or got fired. And so she is the only person who ever won the employee of the period. So sometimes people notice and you get awards like that, you know. But sometimes you don't. But when you keep your behavior excellent, not just at church, Riley, on Sundays and Wednesdays, but out in the workforce, out at, at uh, UCO when you take in your business administration courses, uh, that... Uh, rather than slandering you because you're Christian, they're going to see your good deeds, kind of your lifestyle, the light of your life, and they're going to take your faith and hopefully your Savior seriously. So boom, boom, boom. Uh, Christians who work as servants or who are students and under teachers or athletes under coaches uh, are to willingly submit to those who are over us as a key expression of our saving faith. And I think it's very important and not often emphasized anymore uh, we're kind of losing the old, it was called the Protestant work ethic. It's really the biblical work ethic. Okay, I want you to notice something as we move now to uh, the second part of the passage, verse 21 through 25, really the heart of the passage. Focusing on Christ will let you to do this because his submission to unfair suffering is the basis of redemption, salvation for those who believe. Notice the relationship here. I mean, uh, that top block there is the passage we looked at two weeks ago before Mother's Day. Talks about our Christian submission to human government, and I remind you that in the first century uh, they weren't voting for for Nero. Okay, Nero was the the emperor, as First Peter's writing this book, and he wasn't a Christian. In fact, he had a lot of Christians killed in Rome. But in general, you know, submit to government authority until unless it's a sin to. So we've been told to submit to government authority, regardless if it's a Republican or Democrat in the White House. Uh, as our general operating principle, we're to submit to employers and others who are over us in the workplace as uh, workers, as it were. But all of that is based on Christ's submission uh, for us. And if he didn't submit to unfair suffering, we would not have salvation even possible because that's what the cross is all about. And this part of the passage has a premise, a focus, and talks about our status because of our Savior. Look at verse 21. For you've been called for this purpose, okay, Riley? You've been called to do the right thing when it's not easy, to do the right thing when, not, when you're not appreciated and getting all the warm fuzzies you deserve on the job or other places. You've been called for this purpose. That's one purpose we're called for, to shine the light in dark places. 
since Christ suffered for us, and in his submission to unfair suffering, he left us an example for us to follow. And I would say he's the example of submission to the will of God, even when it was unfair, involved unfair suffering, I should say. Uh, now, what you need to know is a lot of people on the far left for the last hundred years have said that is the reason Jesus died, to show us an example of virtuous martyrdom, to show us an example of, uh, you know, when you speak truth to power, the man tends to, to kill you, and you're supposed to do that anyway. I would suggest to you that Christ as an example on the cross of submission to the will of God in the face of unfair suffering is a very important part of what he did there, but it's not the central thing he did there. The central work of Christ on the cross was to be a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. He who knew no sin, committed no sin, was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so it's important to note that, I think. Uh, if I can cite from um, Sonic Light again, soniclight.com. Whereas Jesus' atonement did set an example for us, it accomplished much more than that. Peter here cites only his example in view of his purpose, which was to encourage the readers to endure, to submit to suffering when it's unfair with the proper spirit. But he wasn't saying that's the only thing Jesus did. In fact, if you'll notice in verse 21, he says, hey, Jesus submitting to uh, uh, the powers that be that led him to the cross, even though it involved gross, unfair suffering, gave us an example of how to do that and what that should look like. But ultimately, drop down to verse 24, the core of his work on the cross wasn't just to show us what it looks like to submit to unfair suffering. He himself bore our sins on his in his body on the cross. Uh, he died to pay for our sins as our substitute. So never, ever let one example, uh, that's a bad word to use, one uh, representative characteristic uh, be seen in your mind as the only characteristic of these big things. It's much bigger than that. Look at verse 21 again. You've been called for this purpose, okay? Uh, we're not just called to believe and go to heaven. We're called to believe, live in the fallen world, and to live differently enough people can see the difference and hopefully see Christ in and through us. Uh, and Christ is not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done himself and much more. So I think that's helpful when you're really suffering unfairly. I always like to think uh, when I'm looking at things in my life that I think are unfair, especially painful, I like to kind of put the cross as a backdrop as I look at that issue I'm dealing with. Sometimes as a person or something is dealing with you or whatever, breaking your heart. You, know, you kind of put that against the backdrop of the cross. You go, you know, it shrinks it down. It still hurts, but Jesus did so much more and faced so much more. So I think it's very important that we do that. Okay. Uh, now look at what we're focusing on here, we've got kind of a, a premise and now a, a focus statement. Christ's submission to unfair suffering on the cross is like ours should be and unlike ours ever could be. And let me show you what I mean by that. Look at verse 22. Christ faced unfair suffering and it had nothing to do with any sin or defect in his life, in his mind, thought, character, action, anyway. He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And depending on what kind of Bible you've got, my Bible has a different kind of print for verse 22, and that's telling me that's a direct quote from the Old Testament. Now, if this is the life, death, and burial of Christ and resurrection right here, 
The Old Testament is the part of the Bible that's written before all that happened, that anticipated that. And the New Testament books are written right after all that happens. So, verse 22 is a quote from Isaiah 53, a very famous passage in the Old Testament that prophesies, predicts 700 years before the coming of Christ, all kinds of things about Jesus Christ. And one of the things it said was he would have no sin, there'd be no deceit. And so Peter's saying all of his suffering, uh, up to and including the cross, was totally unfair and undeserved. It was not caused by any defect in him. Whereas for me, a lot of my suffering is caused by my laziness, my sinfulness, my stupidness, my inattentiveness, my uh, obsessive compulsiveness. What else can I confess for you here? It's good for the soul to get it all out. Uh, and if I don't cause it, I, a lot of times I throw fire on it because I have a bad attitude or use sarcastic things that I don't regret later kind of thing. But yeah, it's a quote from uh, the Old Testament, verse 22. Verse 23, keep going. Uh, and while being reviled, and we're thinking about on the cross, they're making fun of him, and they're spitting at him, and they, they whipped him to a pulp before the crucifixion, before he even tried to take the cross to Golgotha. He did not revile in return while suffering. In fact, what does he pray? What's one of the first things he prays? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I got a feeling crucifying the Creator is probably a special category of sin that demands instant vaporization. And if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus, you know, getting in the way, mediating between that special sin, I think those guys would have been vaporized probably. But that's that's what he's doing. He's praying for them. You know, he's not pitying himself. He's pitying them, as it were. He had no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Uh, you see on the screen, this is a portion of Isaiah 53. The cool thing about Isaiah 53, Stephen, is uh, the Dead Sea Scroll material, which was found in 1947, found a complete 66-chapter scroll of Isaiah, carbon dated about 200 B.C., and nobody really has said this much, but Isaiah 53 is such... An explicit description of Jesus, it almost sounds like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I think the easy way to get around that would have been maybe before the Dead Sea Scrolls to say, well, yeah, we know Isaiah was written originally in the Old Testament, but certainly right after Jesus did his thing, the Christians got a hold of one of those documents and kind of rewrote Isaiah 53, and we got a corrupted version. Now the the Dead Sea Scrolls gives us this material that's 200 years before the coming of Christ, all 66 chapters, and Isaiah 53 reads exactly the way it reads in your Bible, English translation, and it says things like, he was pierced for our transgressions, he's crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace. See, he's an example, but more importantly, he's an expiation. Okay, Don't you hate it when people use theology terms early in the morning like this? Uh, expiation just means a wiping clean. Okay, Yeah, Jesus is an example of unfair suffering, and absolutely, he's the ideal example but he's so much more than that. His death isn't just an example. It's an expiation. It's an atonement. And the passage that really puts those two together, his example, as Peter cites in verse 21, his expiation, verse 23, is what Jesus says, Tom, in Matthew 20 and Mark 10. Those are parallel passages. Those aren't two separate occasions, but he's saying the same thing, same audience by two different authors. But he, talking about himself, says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, and both of these occasions are when the disciples are talking about which one of them is going to be the most powerful among the group. Each one of them thinks they're so much better. Peter especially, he thought he was better than everybody else. You know, but they all think they're better than everybody else. So they're arguing about which one of them should be the highest in the pecking order under Jesus. And he says, don't worry about that. You know, we're not here 
uh, to subjugate. We're here to submit. You know, we're here to serve. Son of man, I myself, he says, did not come to be served, but to serve, as a general example of the ultimate servant, and specific core mission to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we say Jesus bore our sin, we mean he paid our sin debt. We owe God a debt spiritually we could not pay. We're not in a position to even contribute to the payment for, but he pays it for us. If, heaven forbid, I owe the IRS $100,000 and I don't, uh, I did find out I owe Oklahoma $69.89. I, I thought they owed me $225, and then they sent me a sheet of paper that said, uh, according to this, you, we owe you $225, but we think you owe us a 1000 something Call us. So you know what I did? I called them, and then I prayed after that. But, uh, yeah, I called them, and it turned out I put one number in the wrong blank, and so it turned out uh, we talked about it, and I'm not going to jail or anything. But they said, uh, okay, we, you, you're going to owe $70.06, but we'll send you the paperwork. And then we got the paperwork yesterday, and it's like $68.92. It's just slightly less than she said. So I think I can cover that. But let's say I didn't owe them around $70. Let's say I owed them 100000 I don't have that. I can't write a check for that. But Homer, who's got a whole lot of money and is very generous, <laughs> let's say he heard about my plight, and because he's my friend, wanted to cover that for me, wanted to bear that uh, debt for me, he would write a check, uh, and it'd be nice if he just wrote a check and put my name in it, but if he but, but OTC, which is Oklahoma Tax Commission or IRS, you know, if he wrote a check like that and gave it to me or gave it to them to cover my debt, that's what Jesus is doing for us on the cross, okay? We're saying, and he's saying, that, yeah, I'm coming to serve, and it's all about service of God, and you'll get your reward in the end, you know, forever, but ultimately, I'm coming to give my life a ransom. A ransom is a payment price to free someone from slavery. We're free from the slavery of sin, uh, of uh, the penalty of our sin because of the, not the example, but because of the expiation, of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Uh, it's very important that Peter, when he's talking about Jesus' life was an example, his death was an example for Michael or Amanda to follow, this isn't telling them how they can get to heaven or how they can keep their way to heaven. This is telling them, as people who have a heavenly citizenship, how they ought to live, okay? The example of Christ talks about our works for him as Christians. That's not how you get into this family of God. You're not entered into the family of God based on your merit or your work. We're, what, what work makes us a part of the family of God? The work of Christ for us, not our works for Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And 10 says, for by grace, grace means unmerited favor. You don't deserve it, you don't earn it. That's Homer just covering my debt, even though I did nothing to earn or deserve him paying $100,000 for me. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is active, receptive trust in Jesus Christ. Not of yourselves, not of anything you did. It's the gift of God. It's a gift. It's not something you buy. It's not, let's make a deal. It's not of works, not of anything you can do, lest anyone should boast about it. For as believers... Caitlin or Riley are his poema, his work of art. His workmanship is what English translations do, but it actually means work of art. It's a little hard to think of Riley as a work of art. I can think of Caitlin as a work of art even more easily, you know. Although, man, those senior pictures, man, you look like a male model. What happened? No, it was awesome, man. Those were, those were good pictures, weren't they? Man, it looks like you'd be on the cover of a magazine. Uh, for we are, as believers, Blanche Britton and, and uh, 
Uh, Olga Pollock, Brad McCoy are God's work of art. Hard for me to believe I'm a work of art, creating Christ Jesus for good works. Notice that believers, uh, people are not saved by or of good works, but we've been saved to follow his example and produce good works, right? That's that's the point. So good, good works are not the root, but they are the fruit. They're not the cause of the effect. So when you see example, don't think that's the way I can get myself to heaven by following Christ's example. No, that's your privilege as a believer who's trusted, dared to believe the unbelievable, verse 24, that he paid your sin debt. He did all the work necessary to get us to heaven. It takes a lot of faith to put your whole eternal destiny in the hands of someone you've never seen, you've only read about, and to dare to believe that he died for you and rose again from the dead, and you can't reproduce that in the laboratory for Richard Dawkins or anybody else. You can't reproduce that. It is a miracle, right? But that's the way it works. And so, yes, the example of Christ is very important, but it goes back to his expiation, and we embrace him in faith. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. It's on me. It's my fault. Uh, I'm not going to blame my mom or my pastor or the president or anybody and I can't fix it, but I need it fixed. And I believe Jesus died to pay for my sin debt. I want him to be my Savior. I trust him. And then you say, Lord, I love you. I want to serve you. Of course I want to follow your example as your child. But that's not how you get in the family. You get in the family by simple, childlike faith. And the bottom line is this, this core message of Christianity that transcends colors, cultures, and countries is the fact that because Christ died for our sins, masters and slaves, white and black, educated and uneducated, there's only one race in God's mind, the human race. Because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And he did die for our sins, but he's not dead anymore. He's resurrected. The reason that Christians have a hope beyond our friends' funerals is because we believe in a crucified, risen Savior and his resurrection seals the deal. It proves that validates all his claims to be the issue in the issuer of eternal life. Okay, let's go back to verse 24b and verse 25. We've seen a premise, a focus. Now, here's our status because of our Savior. If you're a believer, this applies to you, Tom Robertson, uh, Steve Skinner, to Brad McCoy. Uh, he bore our sins so that as believers in that, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And Steve, a lot of these uh, overeducated commentators say there's not a lot of commonality between Peter and Paul, but that sounds like Romans 6 to me, doesn't it? Where Paul says, as believers now, we are to die to sin and live to righteousness. These guys have the same uh, source of their information. They line up just like that. Sometimes they use terms, terms slightly differently. Uh, this is your first general order, and part of dying to sin and living to righteousness is submitting to teachers that are a little harsh. Okay, uh, Lori, I, you had a speech teacher at Cameron University who was kind of hard to get along with, wasn't he? Kind of, uh, his good looks were so dazzling it was, uh, you know, hard to concentrate. Right? Uh, for by his wounds you've been healed. Uh, for you were continually straying like sheep. I'm talking about Isaiah 53. That's that's a, a citation out of Isaiah talking about us straying on sheep. But now we've been returned reconciled to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. We are to die to sin and self because we've been forgiven of sin by the Savior and we live for him out of gratitude, not to, to be saved, but because we are saved. So let me sum up this way. Um, 
this is talking about a tough subject because we, we're not crazy about having to submit to coaches we don't like or employers we don't like, or in this case, uh, house servants that were connected legally, uh, involuntarily to their, to their employers. Uh, we don't really like that. It's tough, tough stuff to think about, but it's not a bad word because we need to focus on the example of Christ in this area along with everything else. And remember that submission by Christ to the plan of God, which dealt with the unfairness of the crucifixion and all the stuff that surrounded it, uh, is the very basis for our salvation. So how in the world can we say that submission is a bad word? If we understand it correctly, we see it as part of our function of submitting to our Lord Jesus Christ in our Christian life. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to see each one of us here either has worked for, is working for, or will work for uh, someone or someones that uh, maybe uh, aren't always perfectly fair uh, or equitable, don't always appreciate all of our wonderful strengths and our efforts to do the right thing and work hard uh, for them and for the institution we're working for or working with. Uh, and help us to remember that you're calling us to bring 110% with bosses we like and teachers that seem cool and they're fun to listen to, and you tell us to bring the 110% to bosses who aren't so friendly and sometimes are hard to understand or are hard to, to work with or teachers that aren't very cool and kind of speak in a monotone and just read their PowerPoint slides and, uh, you know, uh, have very distracting characteristics. Uh, and you're calling us to bring greatness even to the workplace, even to the t-shirt shop, if we're working in a t-shirt shop or a classroom, not just uh, on the most exciting day of the class, but even on a regular routine, even a boring day. And as we do that, we see that uh, as part of our commission as Christians, we're going to blow people's socks off, not trying to, but it's going to be so much different than the attitude and the behavior that most people bring, even Christians, to most routine things like this that you can really, really uh, turbocharge the impact of our spiritual lives. And we're kind of focusing on Caitlin and Riley today because they're graduating this week. We're thinking about them uh, embracing adulthood and college and uh, Caitlin eventually owning her own business and, and all that good stuff. We pray for her to get good word from the uh, boards uh, this week or next. But uh, this applies to all of us uh, and helps us to see just how practical uh, this is Michael Birch works at home, only sees his boss in person just very infrequently, but helping us see this, this applies to, to him working in that big room in his home, you know, just as he gets up and works in that, in that big room with all those computers, uh, he's got to bring his A game every day because that's a function of his Christian testimony. And I know they're watching him in that environment. So help us to see how this relates to us. For those of us who are in positions of authority where people work under us or we grade people or we interact with people with some, some authority. Help us to be as easy to get along with as possible uh, and not to abuse that authority, and we know that can happen. Father, I pray for anyone this morning who's not from the depth of their heart, I mean, looked at the cross and dared to trust in Jesus as their Savior, open their hearts to see their need and his sufficiency to save, that they might just throw themselves on the mercy uh, of the Savior and realize it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you save us. Uh, we pray all of these things that Christ might be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.